All right, well, good morning. Roger says that I'm actually on. And, uh, and during worship, if there was any discrepancy with the music, it's because Roger left me in charge of swiping the screen for the music. And, uh, but I think it went okay. And I uh, actually enjoyed the introduction to uh, some of the new verses to that song, especially regard to the cross. And, and, um, and I can't actually say enough about all that Roger has done and has been doing and uh, learning and, and learning fast and making all this work. <clears throat> but the only uh, trouble that all of us are having at this point is uh, we all wanna see your faces. We wanna be with you guys. And, um, and I think it's probably gonna be soon, hopefully. And, um, but anyway, this is what we have for now. We're thankful for it and uh, we look forward to everything that's in the future. So. Um, now, I, I normally wouldn't advertise for any particular business, but uh, the more as things go on, my love uh, for people compels me. Uh, I had said something Thursday night about Ocean Sky. Uh, it's uh, the Chinese restaurant in Chehalis owned by a friend of ours named Annie. And uh, they will be open uh, for takeout this Friday and Saturday from 12 to 7 p.m., and uh, if you don't like Chinese food, that's okay. You can uh, pick some up for me and bring it to my house. Uh, I'll eat as much as you can buy. Uh, my favorite is Sichuan beef and uh, honey walnut prawns. I like a bit of, a bit of uh, uh, the seafood chow mein and things like that. So um, feel free to do that. Uh, and, and if you know uh, small businesses in the community that are suffering, uh, I think it, it, it's important for us to realize that that's their livelihood, and, uh, and if we love people, uh, we wanna do what we can to support them. And uh, so, if their business is uh, worth supporting, uh, I believe that's a good thing. So do it, and uh, share Christ with them. Love on those people. And then also, um, uh, the last two, two or three days, I've been in touch with all of our missionaries, and everybody is doing well. Uh, they are experiencing much the same thing we are. Uh, except they have curfews. Well, I don't know if Aaron has curfews in Kenya, uh, but I know that uh, Bethany does where she is, and then Pastor Marcos does. And so that's uh, not something we have to put up with, which is good, but they're doing well. And uh, in their current situation, they're doing the best they can uh, to reach out to people, to be an encouragement, to share the gospel. And, uh, and that's the same thing that we ought to be doing. So continue praying for them. Uh, pray for opportunities for us as well. And as we've been talking as uh, the pastoral staff and the elder board, uh, we're looking for creative ways to minister to people, especially people that are lonely, uh, that don't have people that they're living with. And uh, so those are things that you could be doing as well is find out who in the church or not in the church who's living alone that really has no one and uh, to call them to, to Skype or FaceTime with them. Um, Roger and I are talking about uh, randomly having people drive separately to people's homes and, uh, and sing hymns out in front of their house. Uh, but that doesn't have to be me and Roger. Well, it probably shouldn't be me, but it could be many of you and uh, you could contribute, but get creative. Uh, figure out how to love on people and, and encourage them. So, uh, as you know, also, they're talking about lifting the stay-at-home order and uh, rebooting, if you will, the, the, the economy. Uh, that's going to take some, some wisdom on the part of those on the top, and uh, we want to pray that God would grant that to them. We certainly don't want them to do it without him, 
And uh, so be praying for all of that. And um, yeah, and I think that during this time especially, uh, that the fame uh, and glory of Christ would be known through his people. So uh, keep that in mind at all times. Well, um, I'm glad to be back in uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And uh, so if you want to begin to turn your Bibles there now, um, but I want to uh, provide some review. It's been a while since we've been there. And then uh, we'll get into the text itself. So, so far in the chapter, the author has been comparing the Christian experience uh, of his listeners to that of a long-distance foot race. Uh, that's verse two, but he also uh, compares it to a boxing match in verse four and an athlete who is under intensive training uh, for whatever competition that he might be facing uh, in verse 11. Uh, but of course, in reality, this race, the fight that we're engaged in, was all that they were exposed to uh, in their community, which God, as we went on further into the text, uh, we learned that God was using that to train them uh, in holiness and in righteousness. Those who originally received this letter were a persecuted group of believers who the author said endured a great struggle with suffering from their community. Uh, he said that back in chapter 10, verse 32. He said they were made an object of humiliation as they were reproached and slandered and afflicted. Uh, chapter 10, verse 33. And uh, Amazingly, their personal belongings and their properties uh, were plundered and they were confiscated purely because of their faith in Christ. Chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, I don't believe that's anything that any of us have ever experienced. And, uh, and it adds a, 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 uh, something to the understanding of all this with the historical perspective in mind. And because the author compares their experience to a long distance race, it suggests that this persecution has been ongoing. Uh, he hasn't compared it to a sprint, but more like the, the, uh, the marathon. It's, it's, he has the idea of looking off into the horizon and running to where the sky meets the land. Uh, this is a long distance race. It's persecution that has been going on for some time. But the author tells them that if they are to run this race that's set before them, uh, they had to dump their baggage of sin in order to have endurance. He said that in chapter 12, verse 1. They'd have to give Jesus their full attention, verse 2, and keep in mind the things he endured from sinners and how he endured it from them, lest they become weary and discouraged, verse 3. And they needed to recognize that God was working all of these terrible things together for their good. He said to make them partakers of God's holiness and to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in their lives. That's verses five through 10. But the author wasn't just uh, um, a good illustrator. He understood their pain and he understood their struggle. He too had suffered greatly for the faith, having himself been in prison for Christ. He, he was an insider looking within and he cared for them deeply. And so he continues with his pastoral instruction. So let's take a look at what he had to say to them. I'll be reading uh, God's word to you from the New King James Version out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and uh, verse 12 through 17. The author says to them, after all he's said, he says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, 
and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of bread sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we certainly are not experiencing the same things that this uh, group of believers was back in the first century, these Hebrew Christians, um, the instruction still stands for us. It may become a part of our experience. And, and, and in spite of experience, many of these things uh, are the things that we should pursue anyhow, Lord. And uh, so I pray, Lord, that uh, this morning, that from your word, by your spirit, Lord, that you'd minister to our hearts, that you'd encourage us, you'd give us courage, and that this race that you've set us on, this fight that we're in, as it were, uh, Lord, that we would be strengthened. And as we'll see, that we need to play by the rules, uh, that we might glorify and honor you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, please uh, return again to verse 12 and 13. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. The metaphor is pretty clear or the the visual we get from this. Um, His audience feel like they've given all that they can give and they have no strength to stand or lift their hands, lift their arms. Persecution has worn them out. Now, if you've ever watched a fight where the competitors are evenly matched and it's well into the fight, you see two fighters, they're covered in sweat, their faces are all swollen, and instead of throwing punches, the boxers are hugging each other just to keep their balance. Both are on the edge of collapse and they've got nothing left to give. And if one or the other was to step to the side, their opponent would fall to the ground and the fight would be over. This is how the author uh, metaphorically depicts his audience. Uh, He knows how they feel. He he knows the fatigue that they're experiencing and the hope that they're lacking. He knows what they're going through. He's been there. He's done that. And he may be experiencing it even now. But he also knows how to approach the throne of grace in a time of need. And he expects them to do the same. So instead of pampering them, he does what a good boxing coach does. He tells them to get back in the ring, to fix their stance, to get their fists up, and to fight. To fight like a Christian, to show them what you're made of. And so this, it's interesting, this firm and unyielding instruction is so common in the scriptures. You know, when the saints of the past felt like they had nothing left to give or they had nowhere to turn and all hope was lost, the Lord says, there's always more to give when you have my grace. So stand up and get moving. An example is 2 Kings 19. You know, this this great man of faith, Elijah, when he was on the run from Jezebel, he was thinking he was the last person that was loyal to God. He was thinking all was lost and woe is me and he was hiding in a cave And then God came to him and said, what are you doing here? Get out of there 
and go. I have work for you to do. Also, when Joshua thought that all hope was lost because they'd suffered defeat at Ai, he and the elders of Israel, they were on their faces before the Lord. They were worried that all of Canaan would hear about this defeat and then have the courage and come and attack Israel and destroy them. And the Lord said to him, get up. Why do you lay there on your face? Joshua 7, 10. Now, the author of Hebrews has already done this back in verse four. He said, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. It's like saying, come on now, it's not that bad. Jesus faced worse. You've got more to give. There's gotta be more fight in you by the grace of God, so let's go. And that's interesting because the mature Christian who's been trained by difficulties, he understands their, that person understands their need for God's grace. And like Paul, they would conclude with him when he said, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12.10. Paul came to the conclusion after the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9. Now, if anybody was acquainted with weakness, with suffering, with infirmity, and all of that, it was Paul. But he became acquainted with all that stuff through pain. And it was his suffering that taught him to trust the grace of God and to rely upon him. We might say, as some in the past have said, that it was in the school of suffering that Paul learned how to live by God's grace. God exhausted Paul's strength only so that he could use Paul for greater things. He was making him more useful. But the mature believer doesn't just know how to rely on God's grace. He knows that he has to call others to do the same. So the author is telling these believers, now is not the time to give up. Now is the time to receive God's grace. Now is the time to be energized by his grace so you can make a run for it. God has allowed you to experience your own weakness through struggle and pain to teach you to depend on his strength. Now is not the time to sulk and feel sorry for yourself. Now is the time to fight. Now is the time to run. But it's not just a matter of fighting and running. The author goes on and he tells them in verse 13 to get everything out of their way that would trip them up and cause them spiritual harm. Our lives should be cleared of any debris, so to speak, that would cripple us spiritually. And he As he said in verse one, every weight and sin should be cast aside before it ensnares us. Just as a serious long distance runner must avoid certain vices and exclude certain things from his diet, the Christian must deny himself certain carnal pleasures for the glory of God. And so as we clear our path of those things, uh, there also are these virtues that we must adopt if we're to run as God intended. After telling Timothy that he must endure hardships, Paul compared the Christian's experience to a sporting event, saying that the competitive athlete can only be crowned if he competes according to the rules, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. He's saying that to us. If the Christian is to receive his crown, he too must live by the rules prescribed by Jesus. And here's some of those rules. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace and holiness, or we might say peace and moral purity. You know, both of these virtues are placed in the context of a foot race. 
Paul says, pursue them. The word pursue means to chase after something with the intent of catching it. It means to run something down. Paul used the same word twice in Philippians 3 when he talked about intently pursuing Christ in order that he might take hold of him and take hold of all that Christ had in store for him. But here in Hebrews 12, the author is telling these believers to urgently strive to be at peace with everyone and to be at holy and to be holy. Now the challenge of this directive is the historical context. These people were to pursue peace with their persecutors and to remain holy throughout it. It's probably not something they wanted to hear. They're saying, you want us to strive for peace with those who slander us, who persecute us, and who have confiscated our goods? Yep. That's exactly what the author is saying. Peace is the way of life for the Christian, even when those who oppose us refuse to be at peace with us. But because Paul mentions peace in relationship to holiness, there are conditions for peace. We cannot make peace at any cost or by all means. We cannot compromise what is holy in order to make peace or to maintain it. We must remain holy in our peacemaking. William Hendrickson, Bible commentator, I think he has a worthy comment here. He says, there are circumstances under which the establishment or maintenance of peace is impossible. Hebrews 12:14 not only advocates peace but also sanctification. The latter must not be sacrificed in order to maintain the former. For a peace without sanctification or holiness is not worthy of the name. If the maintenance of peace means the sacrifice of truth and or honor, then peace must be abandoned. In other words, we cannot sacrifice morality and truth on the altar of peace. We're not permitted to compromise the truth of the gospel or our own purity in order to make peace or maintain peace with anyone. If we sacrifice the truth and morality to be at peace with the world, we'll find ourselves at war with God. For example, Christians can never be at peace with human trafficking. We can't do that. Or abortion or sexual morality, false doctrine, or anything that opposes the truth. God and the people of God will never be satisfied with the world's perspective on abortion until it's met with moral outrage. Now, with that said, what does it mean for us when the world does not agree to our terms of peace, our terms for peace? What do we do when peace is impossible? It's easy. We keep pursuing peace. How? By sharing the gospel with love, and committing ourselves to good works. We may not have peace at this moment, as the audience of Hebrews did not, but it doesn't remove our obligation to pursue it by the means prescribed by Jesus. These are the rules of the game. And so peace is always our pursuit, and the gospel and good works are always our method. We must never change our method because of what the world does. Now, this doesn't preclude, of course, our engagement in trying to establish good policy in society and assist, assisting legislation to protect life, but the gospel is our mandate from the Lord, and it is the most powerful method to effect change. Through the gospel and sound reason, it is possible to win people to Christ and see them change their view on evil. You know, the early Christians of the first to the fourth century 
By the gospel and good works, they transformed the moral fabric of the, of the Roman Empire. And they did it at a time when they were the enemy of the state and had no political leverage. Like Jesus, they never took up arms or committed any violence, but they preached the gospel and they loved people. That was the most powerful thing. Paul reinforces this saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Romans 12, 29. But it's interesting what he says before this. He said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Romans 12, 17 through 20. So peace is the Christian imperative. For as much as it depends on you, Paul says, live peaceably with all men. And we can't wait for the world to make peace with us on our, te- on our terms. So we must be the ones that pursue peace with them. There's another issue in regard to holiness here. When things get messy, as it did for the Christians, uh, these ancient Christians in, our, in, our, in the context of Hebrews, the author says they were to remain holy or above reproach. As they were mistreated, Uh, they were to remain blameless. You know, when people mistreat you, it's easy to compromise your convictions and to mistreat them. But we should not. It was during one of our morning devotions that I likened this text to a food fight. You know, if I left the dining room and my dinner table became the grounds of a food fight, I would want to see everyone's hands when I returned. I'd want to know whose hands were clean and whose were not who threw food and who didn't. I want to know who's blameless before I hand out lickings. And I want to know who to reward for not getting involved. That's what the author is saying here. When all is said and done, the Lord wants his people to have clean hands. He wants us to remain holy even in the absence of peace. And that's most certainly the context of this passage. Now, if the Holy Spirit would have these people these persecuted people, be at peace with those who abuse them, how much more would he have you be at peace with others? You know, like the person at work who is unkind to you. That's something Pastor Roger can never say. Or a nasty neighbor, your boss, a sibling perhaps, a parent, or even a child. Peace and holiness are the imperative. And then, as we pursue peace and holiness... We have a mutual responsibility to one another. That is, to one another in the fellowship. Verse 15, he says, Looking carefully, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And then he lists a bunch of things. He says, Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Here in verse 15, the author seems to have in mind Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, uh, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint, which says, Make sure 
There is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Now, it's clearly not a a direct quote from the passage, but it's very similar, and the author probably has it in mind. The idea in Deuteronomy is the concern for apostasy. Moses was warning people about turning away from the living God to serve idols, and the whole community was responsible to be on the lookout for this, to ensure that infidelity was not spread among the people and poison others. Now, if the author of Hebrews has the same thing in mind, he intends for these believers to be watching out for one another, helping each other take hold of the grace of God and helping one another remain faithful. So he goes on in, uh, from verse 15 through 17 with this instruction, things that are to be on the lookout for. He's already said people falling short of the grace of God, people becoming a, bitter, a root of bitterness, people fornicating, people who are profane, which is the opposite of holy. He says this is the collective responsibility of everyone in the church. We might say this is our self-watch. It's church watch. Not to spy on other believers, but to lovingly look out for their souls, to watch their back. Every one of us is responsible for everyone else's spiritual well-being. And where the church fails to be attentive to its individual members, We run the risk of someone falling short of the grace of God and becoming a problem that goes undetected until many other people are defiled by one of these things. So a root of bitterness. You know, bitterness is the worst. Bitter people are the hardest people to reach because they usually feel so justified in their bitterness. And the good guilt that we feel from sin has a difficult time penetrating bitterness. For that reason, few people ever confess their bitterness. And if someone is bitter because they've been emotionally wounded or had their pride injured, they're even more difficult to win. And and bitterness is one of those things that doesn't resolve itself. It's typically, uh, it burrows itself deep in the heart where it impacts every area of a person's life and it can come out like a raging lion at the drop of a hat. You know, bitterness harbors every insult. It sulks in its own misery. It seeks the pity of others, but keeps track of every fault while inventing imaginary ones. It dwells on the past and punishes every offender, but it never is aware of itself. Bitterness also is is rarely content being alone. Everyone should be as miserable as they are, and so they infect those around them. So the author is saying, be on the lookout for bitterness. The sooner it's dressed, the better. And the only way to escape it is forgiveness. So don't ever comfort anyone in their bitterness. Just encourage them to forgive. They're wrong and they should not be coddled. And if they begin to infect others, they need to be confronted and they need to be given no other option but repentance. We have a a wonderful booklet on bitterness here at the church called Bitterness. You should read it, even if you're not bitter. And if you were bitter, you probably wouldn't know it, so you should read it anyway. It's a great article. Let's move on. What about fornication? Fornication is mentioned in verse 16. The Greek word speaks of a sexually immoral person. Now, in the context of the Bible, which 
That's where we have to define this term because we certainly don't want to learn it from the Greeks or the Romans because they really had no concept really of what was sexually immoral. So in the context of the Bible, God created sex for the covenant of marriage alone between one genetic male and one genetic female. So any kind of sex act outside of that setting is immoral. So immoral that the one who practices it will be excluded from heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Now this particular sin always amazes me and not in a good way because for a few passing moments of pleasure, people will put everything on the line. They will risk their lives, their career, their reputation, their friends, and their families for it. And in the end, if they have not repented, they forfeit their soul. Sex is sacred. Now in the context of Hebrews, these people were suffering persecution for their faith. Their property was looted and confiscated. And and amazingly, the author is suspect that some within that historical context have time for fornication. It's crazy. We need to look out for one another in this area. If you see a brother or sister being tempted in this area, try to intercept them before they fall. Do all that you can to intervene. If they've already fallen, go to them as Paul said. He said, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6.1. Beware though. Because the more a culture normalizes every kind of sexual sin, you will likely be resisted and accused of being self-righteous and judgmental. Now, if you're truly being self-righteous rather than loving, you need to repent as well. But if you lovingly call them out for sinful behavior that would destroy their souls, you've done the right thing. You've done nothing to be ashamed of. You know, pointing out their sin and calling them to repentance is not condemning them, You're trying to steer them away from condemnation. It's an act of kindness. They will say to you, hey man, judge not lest you be judged. Didn't Jesus say that? Now this is just a tactic to get the blame off themselves, but it's not a good tactic because they are now acting as judge, which they just said you were wrong for doing. They are saying it's okay for them to act as judge, but it's not okay for you. Now don't get distracted by that and don't be intimidated by it. You know, when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, he was talking about unfair and hypocritical judgment. He was saying that the major league sinner has no right to go, go to the minor league sinner and tell him that he needs to change his ways. That's hypocrisy. That's not what we're talking about here, though. When it comes to a sinning brother or sister, Jesus commands us to confront them. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, go and tell him his fault. So the sinning person can accuse you of judging them, but we call it obedience to Christ. And not all judgment is bad. In fact, in Matthew 7, 6, Jesus said this. Right after he said, judge not lest you be judged, he said, do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls to swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, of course, this language is figurative, Jesus is talking about people who would despise you for something good. But the question is, how can you tell the difference between those who would despise your goodness and those who would appreciate it? You'd have to make a judgment. Judgment is how we determine one thing from another. 
Judgment is like anything else. It can be good or bad. And remember, the book of Proverbs is all about being wise and judicious, which the Bible says is virtuous. So when you confront a sinning believer, you're doing a good thing in obedience to Christ. You're not trying to bring them down. You're, excuse me, you're trying to bring them out, out of sin, and back into fellowship with the church. You're trying to save them. So don't be intimidated when people get defensive. Expect it. Expect it. And just work around it with humility and with love. How about a profane person? The author compares this profane person to Esau, who is the older brother of Jacob. Now first, the word profane is the opposite of holy. So we're talking about being on the lookout for unholy, profane people in the context of our fellowship. People that would be among us. It sounds nefarious. But by mention of Esau, we're talking about someone who doesn't hold on to important things with any lasting conviction and who for a moment of pleasure or relief are willing to throw it all away as Esau did with his right of the firstborn. For a bowl of soup, he waved it all just because he was hungry. But after he was satisfied, he regretted it passionately with tears. But it was too late. That ship had sailed. It was worthless to him one moment, and then it meant everything the next. Now this is probably a reference to those in the fellowship of the Hebrews who were willing to leave the faith because of persecution, but as soon as the persecution subsided, they'd want back in the fellowship. According to the author of Hebrews, this behavior is profane. You know, fair weather friends of Jesus are no friends at all. They're unholy. Now, because we're not currently facing persecution, we may not have an exact comparison to this, but it doesn't mean that the potential for it isn't there. Who, who are, we might say, the potential Esau's in our fellowship? You know, this is the impulsive person, the emotional person who makes decisions based upon how they feel at the moment rather than on what is right and true according to the word of God. Like Esau, when it comes to important matters, these people can feel one way at one moment and then totally different another moment. Their convictions aren't tethered to anything solid, so they act according to how a particular issue makes them feel at a particular time. You know, these are the roller coaster people who want you to ride with them. Don't do it. They're passionate one moment, but could care less about the same issue a day later. You want no part of that in your Christian life. They're not driven by the truth of God's word, but by impulse. It's about their appetite. It's about the, the emotion at the moment. And if these people do not get grounded in their convictions, they can be a serious danger to the church, especially if they're in any kind of leadership. We never want those people in leadership. So what do we do when we see someone like this in our fellowship? First, we don't want to be suspicious of them and watch them like the secret police. This is the family of God. This is what we do. Those who are grounded, those that are mature and have strong convictions, these people need to befriend them. They need to disciple them. You know, many of us at one time had the potential to be an Esau early on in our Christian walk. But someone helped us get grounded. Someone instructed us until we became the instructor. You know, when I came to faith in my early 20s, I was, I was emotionally loopy. I had no conviction. But I remember how many godly men took me under their wing. They were patient with me and they instructed me. 
And in hindsight, I can remember much, I, 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 rather I can't remember much doctrine or theology that they taught me, but one thing I do remember was the love and reverence that they had for God's word. That's what they passed on to me. You know, many of these men, I still disagree with on a number of issues, but our fellowship is rooted in our love for God's word and the God of the word. When I was about six months old in the faith, an elder at a church I'd attended uh, was talking about me as if he was talking about someone else. You have to do that with people like me. And he said, if you don't have any convictions, you can borrow some of mine. And the conviction was this from Job 23, 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You know, I've gotten off track a number of times in my Christian faith since that time. But it was always my love for God's word that brought me back, every time. When you love God's word, God's word will always steer you back to him. And it'll always ground you in the truth, always. The more we pass on that conviction, the less Esau's will have to be concerned with. That's the truth. Convictions can be passed on. The people of our fellowship need us. Everybody's at a different place. Some people are ready to fall out and it's for us to come alongside them with the strength that God has given us and to strengthen them. Now let's, let's wrap things up here. As we know from the context of this whole book as we've seen, the author was intimately acquainted with the struggling fellowship of persecuted believers. And in spite of their current distress, he tells them to put their fists up, to correct their stance and fight. Now is not the time to give up. And instead of letting down their guard, he tells them to be on the lookout. Now is not the time for every man to be for himself. Now is the time to be looking out for everyone else. He says, pursue peace with all men. Maintain your holiness. Keep the fellowship close. Be on guard for everyone else. He's saying keep the faith, be faithful, and be holy. Let's end with some worship, and, uh, and then we'll pray.